The following audio is from Harvest Church in Memphis, Tennessee. Good morning, Harvest. Uh, So excited about our time uh, to come right here in God's Word. If you'll start making your way to Jonah. Um, I I gave you a a heads up last week, so hopefully you found it and marked it with uh, your little thingy, you know, that goes in your Bible. If you haven't yet, uh, you know, pass the Psalms, keep it going. If you get to the red letters, then back it on up. And uh, you'll find it in there. It's just two pages, so you may even have to go to the table of contents. There's still time. Uh, Let me tell you, uh, on the slide, we've got Hunter did an awesome job. Jonah, the relentless pursuit of a rebel like me. And uh, number one here is going to be man on the run. And uh, you're probably kind of going, where's the whale? You know, I don't understand. But uh, I told you last week, and, and I want to tell you again today, th- this is so much more than a whale. And, and even uh, Caleb this morning, right before I came up, he goes, Dad, are you going to tell him about the whale? <laughs> and that's like, yeah, I'm going to tell him about the whale, but there's more to it, buddy. Hang in there. Um, you know, most of us, that's just what we've heard. Jonah, prophet, swallowed by a whale, not sure why, ends up getting kind of vomited back out. And what's the application? I don't know. Stay away from stormy nights at sea. I mean, it's like we don't really have much there. But I want to tell you, this is a rich Really prophetic narrative. It's, it's, it's one verse of, of, uh, of prophecy and then the rest narrative about how Jonah deals with the word of prophecy God's given him and how God deals with Jonah. And, and if you know what it is to be prone to wander, uh, if you know what it is to be prone to sin, if you know what it is to um, see clearly what God's word says and even, even, even hear just softly but surely what his spirit says and know what it is to run when God's word threatens our pride, or when it threatens our comfort, or when it threatens our security, or just when we're confused and don't understand, if you're like, well, yeah, yeah, of course, then welcome to Jonah. And I promise you, the more we look at this narrative these next three weeks, the more that you'll see yourself in him and, and really see his struggle in you. And I can promise you that. Uh, at the end of the day, we're all going to be saying, I am Jonah, and we'll see it clearly, and that's my prayer for us. So let's go to the Lord now and ask. Um, God, I, I just ask that, that, that you, you just teach us this story, I, I, just afresh, like we've never heard it before. Uh, let us see the struggle of a man who loves you and yet struggles to trust you and, um, and does what comes very naturally to sinners and rebels like me, and he, and he just runs And yet we see the undercurrent of what you're doing in his fugitive state, how you are relentlessly pursuing Jonah because you love him and how you bring him to that sweet place of repentance and what you teach him about your very character in that. And oh God, that we come to so much more appreciate your grace and so much more crave your presence in the midst of a flesh that desires to run. Impress that upon us, Lord. Transform us by the power of your word. I pray that I must decrease, God, because you must increase in this text. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Amittai means faithfulness. It's interesting that Jonah is the son of faithfulness. And yet what we're going to see early on here is faithlessness. Now watch. The word of the Lord comes to him and says, verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So far, and by the way, that's it, that's it. That's the only word of prophecy we're gonna get. The rest of the book is gonna deal with what Jonah does with that message and what God does with Jonah. That's it. Go to Nineveh, tell them their wickedness has come before me, tell them to repent or I'm gonna destroy them, that's it. Uh, Doesn't seem so bad, 
right? You're a prophet, make a prophetic utterance. Like, uh, everything seems to be okay. Unless you understand Nineveh, then things are totally not okay right here. Uh, understand a, a few things about Nineveh. It was a fortress city of the world empire of its day. Uh, what do I mean by that? It, had a, it was a 60 miles in circumference. So Memphis, if you take the I-240 loop, including where it connects on the north end on I-40, but if you make that one full lap, 30 miles. So, so Nineveh, ancient times, 60 miles, twice the circumference of Memphis, 100-foot uh, wall circling the city, wide enough where three chariots could literally race around the city on the top of the wall, which they would do. And uh, it, it, within the city, there was 1,500 lookout towers, 1,500 uh, each one of which were 200 feet high. Uh, it took 140 myriad of men eight years to build this city. A myriad is 10,000 men. So 140 myriad, if my math is right, that is uh, 1,400,000 men eight straight years to build this massive city. It was considered in its day to be an indestructible fortress. And what was scarier was the people who lived behind those walls, they were, they were the brute savages of their day. They were known for savagery and, war, and warfare. Um, I said this once in a sermon three or four months ago, but they, they were, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, they were the orcs of their day. Uh, no doubt about it. Matter of fact, J.R. Tolkien wrote that story uh, uh, after translating Jonah and about the Ninevites and the Assyrians, and his study led him in the script to basically produce what we now enjoy in, in, in modern cinema as the Lord of the Rings. And so understand, these people were gruesome. They, would literally, they were so powerful, uh, they would tax everybody to prevent them from attacking you. But then, for fun, they would go out and attack you anyway. So everyone was dirt poor around them. They would go and attack. They would, um, they would starve you out, and then when you came out, uh, they would kill. Um, they would take women and children. They would kill all the men. If they left any peasants, they made them slaves. They taxed them so heavily that um, everyone lived in poverty except the Assyrians. Uh, they were known for their torture methods. I don't want to go too deep into this because it's pretty graphic and gross, but... But they, uh, they buried people alive. They, they made up stuff to do to folks. They paid their soldiers for how many heads they could come back with impaled upon spears. And so understand the Assyrians were incredibly feared throughout the earth and hated. Everyone was dirt poor in poverty because of this, this great city that imposed its brutal and savage will upon everyone else. So if you're an Israelite in the time of Jonah, in the, in the, in the biblical times, you, like everyone else, hate Assyria. Not only you fear them, you hate them. Absolutely hate them. So now, now understand in context, God just told Jonah, Jonah, here's your word. All right, give it to me. I want you to go to Nineveh. N Nineveh? I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to tell them their wickedness has risen all the way up to my nostrils here, and if they don't repent, then I'm going to destroy them. I'm sorry, I lost you at Nineveh. Did, did, you, did, you, did you say? And, and I want you to see what Jonah's reaction is here in verse Three, but Jonah, but but that's never good. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. And look at this, away from the presence of the Lord. God's command to Jonah was go to Nineveh. He went to Tarshish. He went to Tarshish. He went to Tarshish. Uh, in Hebrew writing, what they did to emphasize was use repetition. And what we're meant to see here is God said Nineveh, and he fleed to Tarshish. Now, I want to show you a slide of what that looks like. Y'all see that? He put in at Joppa. He lived just north of Joppa. He put, look at Nineveh, 550 miles northeast. Look at Tarshish. 
2,500 miles. And by the way, if there had been a further place in the known world, he'd have gone there. You know what comes after Tarshish? Boston. And nobody knew about Boston yet. And so literally, like this is, this is such a, Jonah gets on a ship and says, take me to the end of the earth. Take me as far away from Nineveh as you, this is Jonah. He's not, he's not beating around the bush. He is defiantly before God saying, I'm not doing it. I am, I'm not doing that. I, I, and look, there's, I don't understand why you would want to do that. The, the, the Assyrians, really God? You know what we're going to get later? He's not just afraid for his life. If he's a human, he's afraid for his life. But he's afraid for far more than that. He's afraid the mercy of God might actually be poured out upon these people, and that offends him. The grace of God in its scandalous nature offends Jonah. And how quickly we can forget that we were once merely wretched, broken sinners. And every one of us that has received the grace of God and salvation through Christ stands free in gratitude for the grace that's been given us. But if we're not real careful... We stand in judgment and call for justice on those we see still in their sin. And that's what Jonah does. He says, God, you can't save them. I mean, it's, it's not only their wretchedness, it's they're our enemies. Like they are presently right now taxing us into poverty. Like he has disdain for his enemies. He has a nationalistic zeal for his people. He has a self-preservation instinct for his own life and for the life of his culture. And for all of those reasons, Jonah runs to the end of the earth. Listen to me, he's consumed with himself and his culture and his people and his stuff and his comfort and his security in the presence of a God who's consumed with the nations. So Jonah has to flee his presence to get away from this. Let me, let me just bring this right into your kitchen here. Uh, if, if God had given you a vision this week that said... Hey, insert your name. I want you um, to awaken tomorrow to a fresh day where my mercies are new in your life. And I want you to take this message right into Syria, into the headquarters of ISIS. And I want you to tell them that their wickedness has risen to the stench, become a stench in my nostrils. And if they don't repent, I will destroy them. What are you going to do when the alarm clock goes off? Hey, honey, I just had a really bad dream. Hey, would you pray for me? Like, let's hope that that doesn't happen again. Like, what if that's the clear message from God to you and I? Hey, listen, I'd do everything I could to pretend I didn't hear it. I'm just talking for me. Maybe you guys will be fired up. But for me, I'd be scared. You know what? If I really look deeply, uh, I'd be scared not just for my life, but I'd be a little bit like, God, what are you talking about? These people are, are, are like, they're terrorizing everyone. Like, there's a disdain for my enemy that if I'm not careful, over, supersedes my compassion. If I'm not careful, my desire for the security of my own life, the self-preservation of our culture, my nationalistic zeal, everything could rise up and I could say, man, God, I'm not doing that. And you know, God probably hasn't given any of you that vision. If he, if he has, you're disobedient. Um, but he probably hadn't, and uh, you're probably grateful. And, uh, but let me, say, let, me, let me tell you what did happen this week under the sovereign, watchful eye of God. Let me tell you what did happen. There's tens of thousands of refugees coming from ancient Nineveh, modern-day Syria, under the leadership of ISIS, that are desperately trying to flee. 
uh, to Western nations, to nations where they're coming from places where the gospel is non-existent, to the most hardest to reach places on earth, and they're fleeing to nations where the gospel is prevalent. Now that's just what's happening, and because of something that happened this week, there were attacks in Paris, terrorist attacks, dreadful attacks that have stricken fear among uh, Western nations everywhere, including the U.S., and we see that the terrorists used uh, the uh, uh, passageway of, of, of refugees in order to uh, get into this place and, and, and to carry out their, their misdeeds. And, and so uh, the word is, man, that we're next. They're going to do that same thing here. So we need to close our borders because of what could happen to us. And I don't want to minimize what can happen to us. I'm not a, listen, I'm, I'm not a guy that's just, I'm not all cowboyed up on this deal. And, and I, it's not that I don't have any fear and uh, it's, it's not delegitimized. I don't want to delegitimize the uh, necessity to think carefully and steward for our governing authorities to steward security measures in our country. But I will say this. My problem this week was I was reading the news and I was reading Jonah 1. And that just messed me up. It would have been a lot easier. My week would have been a lot better had I not been reading the news and Jonah 1 together. I'm telling you, this will mess you up. Because here's what I started thinking. Oh, my goodness. You know, there's an outcry in our nation. Our politicians are, are really voicing the outcry of the general public, including Christians, including evangelical Christians, and the outcry is stop the safe asylum of refugees in our nation because of what it might cost us. I get it. I'm sympathetic to the outcry. And I read this and I go, oh, gosh, we're not, a, like, we're not pulling a Jonah here, are we? Like, we're not so consumed with our comfort, our security, our protection, the preservation of not only our lives, but our culture, our nationalistic zeal, and our disdain for the enemy that we merely run. In light of what God could be doing, that's just what I was asking. And can I, can I, can I, can I press that one step further? Would you allow me that? You know what I, you know what I think? Uh, we have been... Gosh, the church has been trying for decades to get the gospel to the very places where the refugees are streaming out. It's nuts if you look. The church has literally been praying for and, and begging anyone that God would press them on their heart, will you give your very life to go to these dangerous places? We will spend thousands of dollars on preparing you and giving you cultural awareness and education, and then you have to learn this brutally difficult uh, language, and that's before you even have your first conversation with a Muslim in a Muslim stronghold in an area where the gospel is non-existent. That's before conversation one, much less convert one, much less movement. And, 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 and here we are, decades desperate. And all of a sudden, under the sovereign watch of God, just tens of millions streaming out, going to the West, looking for, sympathetically, looking for help from nations where the gospel is prevalent. Just stop and look from like, like from a 30,000 foot down, see what God is sovereignly allowing or creating. And if you ask me to script this out, Kenan, what would be the greatest way to see this uh, rapid fulfillment of the Great Commission? Like what, like what would you, how could we possibly get, I mean, these are the strongholds that we cannot seem to get a missionary into. If you were like, hey, script it out. And I was like, I mean, like, I can say I can, we can do anything? Well, I don't know. Like, if God could create a crisis where uh, millions of those people, I know that seems like million, were fleeing to nations of, um, uh, that have a strong gospel witness, 
um, needing our help so that we could love them and uh, give ourselves an opportunity to share the gospel with them and that God might raise up an army of indigenous missionaries through them to send back into those places, like that would probably be the greatest revival the world has ever seen. Now that's if I could script it. And so if I were a man, and that's a big if, that were literally on my knees day after day praying for the nations, like God, save the nations, your great name lifted among the nations. If God did that, I'd have a hard time not saying that's too good to be true. Could God be doing that? Can we ask that question? Can we ask the question, what is God doing let me, let me tell you my frustration with this, and I don't mean at all to politicize this message in any way. We're going to be right back in the text, but, but this was messing me up this week. I see Christians flocking to social media outlets to, to scream at the top of our lungs, stop the refugees, and I get it. By the way, I got a, I got a letter from a missionary, uh, uh, Christian ministry leader asking me to sign a letter to Governor Haslam this very week. And, and, and all Governor Haslam's done, to my understanding, is he's requested from the federal government that the states be, at least this state, be involved in the screening of any refugees before they land here. And, and I, what I was asked to do was to sign that he would renege on that, that out of compassion he would just let them in. And I sat there and I stared at that. And I said, you know what? I can't sign that. Because my best understanding of government is that their chief concern Chief concern is the welfare, is the security of their people. That's his job. And can I just say, I'm really thankful that he's stewarding that very seriously. Like, I want him to ask questions like that. I love it. Please, ask to partner in this. That's wonderful. I appreciate that for the sake of my family and our community. I'm thankful. I don't want to sign that. That's the government's chief concern. But I want to know what the church's chief concern is. The government's to protect this kingdom. The church is to build his kingdom. And if we're not careful, we're just like Jonah, so consumed with ourselves that we miss the moment to be about what God is doing among the nations. Y'all see that? I know it's complex. I've been impressed upon just to pray for our governing authorities like I've never prayed before. God, give them wisdom. And I've been impressed upon to love the foreigners and aliens that he has already sent here like I never have before. I don't know why I'm asking for more if I'm not loving the ones that are already here. But I've also been impressed to pray that God, if you're doing this, let us embrace it. Let us embrace it at the risk of losing everything. Isn't that who we are? Like even in lieu of what happened in Paris, even in lieu of what could happen here, uh, is the gospel worthy of our lives? Do you guys realize the Christians have been answering that question in blood for two millennia? It's like from Jesus Christ on, it was the Christians are the one who lay down their lives, even their lives, that other people might come to know Christ. Is that still meaningful to us? Tanya, God just hammered me on that this week. That's what it means to be a Christian. So I'm just begging that we ask the question, hey, not just what's Congress gonna do. I pray God gives them wisdom. They do whatever would be good stewardship of their jobs. But I wanna know what we're gonna do. I wanna know what the church, I wanna know what God's doing and how we respond. That's our question. And I'm not gonna answer it for you. But I'm gonna beg you to ask it with me.
let's not miss our moment. Well, Jonah, boy, he stumbles out of the gate. He misses this moment. He runs to Tarshish. Fear consumed with himself amidst a God who's consumed with the nations. And I want you to look how God responds, verse four. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Look at this. I'm an old baseball player. Uh, Here's what I picture. God, storm in his hand. I mean, this is, this is like better than any, you know, knuckle slider. I mean, a storm in. Hurls it. So to picture, you're on the sea. God hurls like, like it just comes upon them, and it's so forceful, the ship's about to break. Like it's cracking. The wood is cracking. It's just going to break. And I want you to see what happens with these guys. The mariners, it's hard to get sailors to be afraid. The mariners are afraid. They cry out to each one cries out to his God. So I know what you're probably thinking right there. Knee-jerk reaction, especially if you're a Christian, you're sitting in here, you're going, cries out to their God. What do you feel right there? You feel a sense of kind of compassion, like, oh, gosh. Like, you know something about that. Futile. It's futile. Like, crying out to their God, we know that'll do nothing because we see behind the scenes that it is our God who has thrown the storm. It is the only one true God brought the storm. Crying out to little false gods will do nothing. We already know that. You don't have to read any further. We know it. Can I ask you something? Is it any different when we turn to eating or drinking to forget our troubles? Is it any different than we, uh, we medicate our loneliness on social media? Is it any different than uh, uh, putting all our hopes and purpose in life on the shoulders of a bunch of teenagers on a college football team Saturday by Saturday? Just saw a guy get elbowed right there. At least that's applicable for someone. <laughs> what about, uh, what about, uh, let, me, let me try to go to the ladies here a little bit. Or maybe so, what, what about uh, looking to the spring? You're going, man, if I can just get to January, I think it's January, I don't know, 16, 19. If I can just get to that final season of Downtown Abbey. Then, then, then here's what's true. Here's true. I can make it through the next 10, 20 weeks of a really broken and sour marriage. Like I need, I just need something, I just need a fix, I need something to medicate, I need something to forget, I need something to get me through. How's this gonna work out? None of the little G, and by the way, so, so maybe these are just empty, ultimately unfulfilling pleasures that we turn to as medication to numb the pains of life. Maybe. Maybe it's symptomatic of something more. Maybe there's heart idolatry and we're looking to lesser things than the one true God. Any lesser thing, we're making it a God and looking for ultimate fulfillment and ultimate peace and ultimate joy and ultimate hope in things of this world. Either way, it doesn't work. Nothing but the God who made the sea and hurled the storm can bring you out of it can bring you through it. No false God can save us. Now I want you to hold on to that. No false God can save us. Watch how the story keeps going. They're, they're, they're freaking out, they're hurling cargo that was in the ship into the sea, these sailors, like, like they are fearing for their lives. By the way, can our sin, because it's Jonah's sin, they don't know he is, can our sin cause harm, fear, um, real, ever-present danger for those that are closest to us? Let me, let me tell you something. Not only can it, it almost always does. 
almost always, husbands, I just gotta say this, if you've got an internet addiction, if you're, if you're not surrendering Google searches to the Lord and relationships with ladies in your office, uh, in your thought life, let me just say something. I, I, can, I can make you a solid promise this morning. It will affect your marriage. It'll affect it. It'll affect your family. You persist on, on the run in that one area of your life, you will, you will bring harm to your family. And you can do several things. You can say, well, I'm just gonna medicate that over here by my, my addictions and my passions and eating and drinking and being married. You can ultimately say, I'm gonna just be indifferent. I'm gonna white knuckle it through the thing. I'm gonna fix myself. We're gonna see Jonah and the sailors try to do everything, but I just wanna tell you, ultimately, you'll bring harm on those close to you. And if you persist, maybe God's greatest mercy to you would be if one of those that you're bringing harm as collateral damage to your sin comes to you and rebukes you. It says, your sin and your selfishness is destroying our family. Watch this. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of a ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. Oh man, there's another one. Is it, is it possible? Is it possible to make peace with your sin? Is that possible? I know a lot of times it's like, man, there's sin. It's, it's, it's like an anvil on my heart and I can't breathe and I gotta do. But is there, is, there, is there plausibility that we can, we're just masters at justifying our sin in my own mind so as to think, what else could I have done or what else could I do or there's really nothing so I've just gotta forge ahead, not really deal with it openly, not really bring it into the open, not really acknowledge, not really repent, not really cry out for mercy, just to sleep on it. Is it possible to make peace, to justify in our minds over and over again and say, I'm done with it. I'm not dealing with it. I'm done with it. Jonah made peace, and watch this. But the captain, so the captain came to him and said, here's the pagan uh, rebuking the man of God. What do you mean, you sleeper? I know that's a weird question. What do you mean? You think, you'd say, what are you doing? Like, uh, what, you know, but what do you mean? It, it wasn't a misspeak. It's not a weird translation. Here, here's what he means. By Jonah being asleep, Amidst the storm, his actions were speaking louder than his words. And the captain says, hey, what do you mean? Like, the captain's saying, how could you possibly be asleep when all of our lives are in danger? By the way, the captain doesn't even know yet it's his fault. He just wants to know, how could you be so self-absorbed? How could you be so selfish? What do you mean, being asleep? We're all about to die. Doesn't even know it's because of him yet. How would that have changed it? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give, us, give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let's cast lots. Even the pagans knew that we've got to go supernatural. We've got to go to the divine on this. It's something God is doing. And so they, they want to know on whose account the evil has come. They cast lots. The lot falls to Jonah. And they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? What people are you? They're like, tell us all about yourself. What is going on? And at this point in the story, you kind of assume Jonah's going to make something up. I mean, he's fleeing to the ends of the earth to not deal with God on this. He's gone out away from the presence of God. Um, he's sleeping in the midst of the storm. He's made peace with his sin. You think that here he's going to try to kick a little more dirt, like he's going to cover this thing up. 
But right here in the story, something happens. I want you to see it. Don't miss this. Right here, we begin to see the breaking point for Jonah in the midst of the rebuke of the pagan. And a lot of times in an intervention, that's about the last step. When, 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 when folks that you know and love that you're hurting come to you and say, hey, that's enough. And in the rebuke of the pagan, Jonah begins to break, and he comes clean and nigh, and he says to them, look, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. In other words, I don't have a false God to turn to. I don't have a little G God. I don't have any other safe haven that we could possibly seek refuge in. I actually fear the Lord who created the sea, meaning he's in control of this. So he glorifies God. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said, well, what have you done? They knew that he was fleeing the presence of the Lord because he had told them. You know what this says? Jonah fessed up. Jonah told them, God gave me his word and I ran. And he controls the sea, which means he's in charge of the storm. Uh, It's my fault. I did it. It's me. It's a beautiful moment. Anyone here that's on the run, and by the way, we are so prone to wander, so prone to sin, to leave the God we love. I'm telling you, our knee jerk and anything that we don't understand that might cause pain, that might cause a threat to our pride or our our security, we run. Let me tell you, if you're running, you're going to either endure the providential storms of God, we're going to see why in a moment, unless or until... You do what Jonah does right here. God, I acknowledge that you are Lord of the storms. And I acknowledge that I'm on the run. I did it. It was me. No excuses. He goes a step further. This is pretty crazy. They say, what should we do? So the seal quiet down. Jonah goes right to the chase. He says, pick me up, hurl me into the sea. You know what he says? My life for yours. That's what you're gonna have to do. Like, the consequence of my sin is judgment. I recognize it. I'll avail myself only to the mercy of God. I deserve death. Throw me in. He thinks he's going to die. He thinks God's out to kill him. And I like 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. (laughs) Uh, They're like, man, we can't kill this, brother. And so they row hard. Let me ask you, did turning to false gods help them at all? They know. No, let, let me ask you, did sleeping, trying to sleep through the storm and persist making peace and justification of your own sin, did that work? No, he got rebuked by a pagan. How about trying to save yourself? How about pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps? I can get through this, I'll fix it. I'll fix all the consequences of all that, that's trickling out from what I did wrong with that. I'll fix it, then I'll just try harder not to sin again. I can do it, I can be my functional savior. Is that gonna work? You know what it says? but they could not. We can't save ourselves. Guys, medicating our sin on the run doesn't work. Justifying our sin and sleeping and making peace with it doesn't work. Trying to save ourselves doesn't work. He is running out of options. And look at this. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Like they recognize this is your providence, this is your storm, okay. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea. And picture it, the sea ceased from its raging, just whoosh. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Anytime you see sailors taking vows of moral purity, the only explanation is regeneration. And these men, am I right, Roy? Thank you. 
these men, listen, a moment ago, they were running to false gods. You know what they're doing now? They fear the Lord. Can God, can God work out all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose? Do y'all remember Romans 8? It was only two weeks ago. I want you to know God's at it again. They thought it was real bad luck running into Jonah, and all of a sudden God uses what was real bad luck in human eyes as a means to their salvation. And then I want you to see verse 17, because honestly, this is the main point of our text this morning. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So that's how God was going to do Jonah in. Hit him with the whale. No. Listen, Horace, God did not send the whale to kill Jonah, to finally put him down put him out of his misery. God sent a whale to rescue his servant who was on the run. He sent the whale not to kill him, but to rescue him. Listen to me. Jonah had no idea. Here he is on a storm. God's hurled the storm, but at the same time he hurled the storm, you know what he put beneath the waves? He put a large sea creature with the ability to rescue Jonah so that he didn't drown when he finally repented and availed himself to the mercies of God. At the same time he put the storm, he put his gracious provision of his love underneath the waves. There was only one way Jonah could get from the ship to the whale. He could not turn to false gods, he couldn't sleep, and he couldn't fix it himself, and neither can we. He had to say, I deserve death. I sinned, I was wrong, and he had to publicly acknowledge it he had to tell the sailors, I'm sorry, guys, it was me. You're going to have to get rid of me if you all want to be free, and you ought to do it. Not making excuses, is he? And only then, when he has surrendered, his only hope is mercy. Little does he know, under the waves, they're swimming a whale. The provision of God is already there, waiting to meet him in his surrender. Jonah thought God sent the storm to kill him. What do we find out as the readers? Is that why God sent the storm? No. You know why he sent the storm? He loved him enough to send a storm in the midst of his running away from God's presence because he wanted to squeeze him to the point of repentance so that he would return to the presence. Isn't that something? Let me ask you. If God loves Jonah enough, to send storms in his life, to bring him to the point of repentance and restore him into his presence, do you think he loves us enough to do the same? Now, if you do, you need to reconsider the storms in your life because some of you guys are white-knuckling it right now. Some of you guys have been kicking a whole lot of dirt over a whole lot of stuff. Some of you guys feel like I've almost got this thing fixed and I've almost dealt with all the consequences. Some of you guys are running to things just to medicate your sin so that you don't have to even acknowledge it further of you. Some of you are in the midst of a storm and you're trying to make peace. God loves you enough to have you there. You know know what the most subtle storm is in American Christian? You know what the very most subtle storm is? Is that he lets you have everything you ever wanted and you realize how unsatisfied you really are. No false God, no justification, no fix it yourself. You're still stuck. Let me tell you the same thing that we see about Jonah. Amidst the storm, beneath the waves, there is the gracious provision of God awaiting 
The moment you surrender, the moment you set foot off that ship, just know the rescue plan for you has already begun. He's after you. He's relentlessly pursuing you in your sin. Hey, Kenan, how are you so sure that God's not out to get me? Like, you don't really know my life and my sin. How are you so sure that he's not trying to pay me back, that he's trying to bring me back to his presence? I can tell you with full authority on that. And here's how I know. About 800 years after Jonah came another one like him. He was, an, he was another Jonah. He was a second Jonah. He was a greater Jonah. He was the ultimate Jonah. And this one didn't just go into the sea on behalf of his fellow sailors. He went into the sea of God's wrath on behalf of those who were guilty. Now listen to me. And just like Jonah, the sign of Jonah, they would call it, Jesus would be in the seeming belly of the whale. He would seemingly be dead for three days. And then all of a sudden he would appear again and he would appear as one who has been resurrected, victory over sin, death, and the grave. The only difference in Jesus and Jonah is this. Jonah went into the deep because of what he did, because of what he deserved on behalf of those who did not deserve it. Jesus went into the deep for what he did not deserve on behalf of those who deserved it. So that we can look at the cross and we can know with full assurance in the midst of my running on my way to Tarshish at any point that I don't wanna continue to white knuckle, fall asleep, press into false gods in the midst of my storm, I can know that the gracious provision has already been laid, that there is safe passage back to the presence of the Father through the Son. It's done. We don't have to fear the storms. Get this, we can actually be grateful that he loves us enough to send them. It's in the storms. We know how badly we need him and we run to him and we are restored in his presence. It's the gift that God gives us lest we spend our lives fleeing to Tarshish. Read a uh, uh, illustration of Max Lucado book I think it's called, uh, No Wonder They Call Him Savior. Some of you may have read it. It tells a story that's pricked my heart. Um, I'll close with this. A lady, uh, a lady lived with her daughter, in a very, they were very poor in a little village outside of Rio in Brazil. And her daughter, they were so poor that her daughter was just always wondering what life in the city would be like. She slept on a little mat on a little dirt floor there. And so one day she knew, she knew she couldn't talk to her mom about it. She didn't want to hurt her mom, but she, she, just, she just wanted to run. And so she went into Rio and, uh, and she, she left in the night. And her mom awoke, awoke the next morning to find her daughter gone and just overcome with fear, knowing that, man, she, she's an attractive um, young teenage girl that's not going to make it in this city. She doesn't have any money. And she just knew what was going to happen and what kind of lifestyle was going to prevail. So she went into Rio. She took the bus into Rio. On the way there, she had pictures made, black and white pictures of herself, the mother, Maria. And she went into the city, and she checked everywhere that she thought her daughter might have to end up to make money. She went to bars and hotels and uh, strip joints, and everyone she went in, she asked about her daughter. She showed a picture of her daughter. Whenever no one could, uh, knew anything about it, she would put her picture somewhere on the concierge desk or on the window or by the door, and, and she would leave. After she was out of money and pictures, she went brokenhearted back to the village. And she just prayed for her daughter. 
And uh, sure enough, it was, it was the worst. Everything the mother could have imagined was exactly what the daughter, Christina, was doing. She was living, uh, she was doing what she could to make ends meet. She was selling her body. She was in prostitution. She was hotel to hotel every different night. She was growing more and more empty. Her senses were being dulled. The life was sucked right out of her. And uh, she became depressed to the point of she didn't want to live anymore. She, she had so much shame, she felt like she should, could not go back to her mother in the village. She just knew she had thrown her life away. She knew she was in too deep at this point. And she thought she could fix it. She thought she could work her way through it, get out of it. But eventually she was at the point of collapse and she had spent the night in some hotel and she came downstairs the next morning uh, really pondering what do I do with my life and she saw a picture in the concierge and it caught her attention. She looked more closely and she saw it was a black and white picture of her mother. And she picked up this picture just astounded and surprised that she would see this picture of her mom and she flipped over the back and on that picture and on every picture her mother had written a note. And on the back of this picture it said, I don't care where you are or what you've become. Will you please come home? You know, there's no doubt in my mind that some of us right now, running, running. I don't want to admit, I don't want to acknowledge, I don't want to confess, I want to get through it, I want to press through it, I want to medicate, I want to forget, I want to fix, I want to sleep, running. Some of you said, I've run so long and so far, there's no going back. Too ashamed. You need to hear the words of the Lord this morning. I don't care where you are on that journey. I don't care what you've become. Will you come home? And the cross of Jesus Christ is proof. It's circling beneath the waters in the midst of the storm is the loving provision of God waiting to restore you to his presence. Only question left is how will you respond? We're gonna take communion in a moment and we have um, juice and crackers that represent his body broken, his bloodshed. You know, I read 1 Corinthians 11 afresh this week. I thought, boy, what an apt text to, to talk about. Paul says, before you come to this table, listen carefully, he says, examine yourself. What for, Paul? He says, you don't want to betray these elements. These elements mean Jesus died in your place and for your sin so that you, acknowledging your need, could come freely to him and receive his mercy. Examine yourself that you are not taking communion while blindly and willfully in your sin on the run. Don't abuse the elements. If you want to run, run. But if you want to be restored to the presence of God, know then that the tables are open. And Paul even says, if you need to sit this one out, if you need to, if you need to go and get right with someone that God's been pressing on you to forgive and you hadn't, or to be forgiven and you hadn't received that and you need to go have a conversation, or maybe it's about sexual purity in a relationship, or a relationship that you want that you don't have, or you have that you shouldn't have, or maybe it's the stewardship of your finances and God's been pressing that still small voice and you've been running because you, you find security in that and it's an idol in your life. I don't know what it is. But if you need to make peace with God, if you need to come clean, and someone's, Paul says, sit it out. Don't, don't, don't pour judgment on yourself. Don't do that to yourself. Let it be a reminder. The price has been paid. I'm coming clean and I'm restored into his fellowship.
So I'm going to pray and we're going to open the tables. Examine yourself. If you need to repent, even now, do it even now. And then the tables are open. Father, thank you that uh, you, you relentlessly, I love that word, you pursue us in our running. We are so prone to wander, so prone to sin. We, we are runners, we're fugitives, we're rebels. And yet you knew that when you demonstrated your love for us by sending your only begotten son to the cross. You knew it then, you know it now, you relentlessly pursue. I can't even fathom the depths of your love, but I'm so grateful. And your love is worth me coming clean. Your love is worth me telling the truth me going through the potential hurt, the shame, the humility, whatever it is, that I be restored to your presence, that I, that I receive the joy of my salvation anew today. So God, I pray for my Harvest family. I love these people so much. I pray that they would not continue to medicate, continue to sleep, and continue to fix, that they would avail themselves to your mercy, that they would find that your mercies are new every morning, that they would turn they would repent, they would come back to you and you would satisfy their souls with your presence as you have promised to do in your word. And if there's anyone here on a macro level that has always heard that invitation of grace, but they've run from you just from the whole idea of being a sinner in need of a savior, I pray that even now the storms of life would have squeezed them to the point that they say, okay, I will step off the ship they would put their trust in your righteous sacrifice on their behalf, and they would find Jesus to be their all in all. Forgive and free them this morning. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Tables are open. Thank you for listening to the audio from Harvest Church in Memphis, Tennessee. Feel free to make copies and distribute this content, but please do not charge for those copies.